And this morning, our scripture reader is Michaela. Don't have a seat too, yet, too soon yet. We are in the Gospel of Luke, and we are starting chapter 2 today at Revolution Church. We like to study books of the Bible the way that God has revealed them to us and the way the author intended for them to be understood. So we study them verse by verse, and we're going to continue that. Michaela, how are you doing this morning? Good. Why don't you move over this way so you can see the screen, and why don't you read God's Word for us as we pay close attention? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar uh, Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Man, well, I feel like saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> We're studying Luke chapter 2, but we don't have to wait till December to study it, do we? Um in fact, I'm kind of the opposite. I don't like to hear any Christmas music at all until around December 22nd, maybe. I don't know, somewhere in there. I could be kind of a Scrooge. But uh, anyway, but it's good to study this passage now to get our hearts ready for them, but also just because it's in the Word of God and we have to study God's Word so we can know more about Christ and the way that people responded to His birth. So we're going to divide up this passage of Scripture into three quick points. First of all, you cannot help but miss the sovereignty of God if you're not watching carefully. You, you have to see that. The sovereignty of God orchestrating this everything around this birth. The second point is the shepherds and the angels and what they did. And then the third point, the saying and how people responded to it. The saying and the responses to it. So there's a decree. It comes from the big man himself, the head of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. Now, if you remember the old King James, it was that all the world should be what? 
taxed, right? Well, there's not a contradiction there. They're registering everybody doing the census so that they know how to properly tax people. It's just a different part of translation there. And then this was, this was the first registration, and Luke is being really specific. He's being a historian. This story did not start once upon a time. It started within those days, and it even gives you a specific reference that Quirinius is the governor of Syria. Okay, so it's get, let, giving a political reference here, a, a timestamp in when this actually happened in history. And for centuries, skeptics pointed out that there was no historical record in the Roman Empire of doing any census at this time. And they would just say, the Bible is not true. Luke just made that up. It's a legend and it's a myth. In fact, one of those skeptics was Sir William Ramsey, the world-famous historian and renowned archaeologist. And he described the statements of the New Testament regarding the geographical and historical references it makes as existing without a single error. He said, I began with a mind unfavorable, in other words, unfavorable about the accuracy of the New Testament. But more recently, I found myself brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority. Who wrote the book of Acts? Also Luke. In fact, some people think Luke and the book of Acts are like just part one, part two of the same writing. And he said it was accurate about the topography, the antiquities, and the society of Asia Minor. He go on to say, it was gradually borne upon me that in various details, the narrative showed marvelous truth. And Sir William Ramsey made several trips over to the Middle East, and eventually, guess what he discovered? A Roman uh, tablet that described the census taken by Quirinius at the exact same time when Luke said it happened. So for centuries, skeptics said, oh, it's not true, it's not true, we can't find anything about it, and then guess what they found? And so based on this finding, he said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, the author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. What we're reading in God's Word is history. This is not legend, this is myth. And you know what? There's still college professors who will quote the old thing, the old skeptics, and they'll purposely leave out this recent finding of archaeology. Archaeology continually proves the Bible to be true over and over again. It says, then all went to be registered each to his own town. Now that's interesting because that would that mean that Mary has to go to one town and Joseph goes to another? We're not really sure. Some people believe that only the head of household had to appear. But it's interesting, just as a safeguard, guess what? Mary and Joseph are both of the household of David. So they both conveniently get to go to Bethlehem. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, just like Mary. So Jesus, by biology, had a right to the throne of David through Mary. Jesus also legally, not just biologically, legally had a right to the throne of David through his foster father, Joseph. And they went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, betrothed, we would think engaged, but I'm glad the ESV left it betrothed because a betrothal is a lot more serious than our modern day engagement. People break off engagements like, you know, easily, okay? A betrothal was much more serious legally. In fact, if you were betrothed to someone to break it off, you had to actually file for divorce as if you were married. You weren't married. You weren't sexually active. You weren't living together. You weren't doing any of those things. You were betrothed. It was a legally 
binding contract, not only between those two individuals, between the two families. The fathers arranged these marriages and all the family consented to it. And so this was a big deal for them to be betrothed. But guess what? They're not married and she's with child. And I can't repeat enough what an amazing woman Mary is, that she's willing to take on the stigma of being either one of two things happened. She was unfaithful to Joseph or Joseph and Mary were unfaithful to God. And everybody would think that and know that about them for the rest of their life. It's even, there, there's even sarcastic comments made when Jesus is in his 30s about his, his birth and being, being an illegitimate child. But she was willing to take that on. And it says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So imagine that you are eight and a half to nine months pregnant and you are making a journey. It, the Bible never says she was on a donkey, okay? Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. They were very poor. So maybe they couldn't afford a donkey. Maybe they could. I don't know. Maybe someone loaned them a donkey. But either way, that pregnant to go about 55 to 65 miles, either on a donkey or on foot or a little bit of both, that was an arduous task. That was quite a a trip for Mary. And I'm sure she's wondering, man, does it get any harder? First of all, I have to be pregnant when I'm just a young little teenage girl. I have to endure all the scorn. Oh, and now the emperor of the world says we all have to make these long trips and everybody's gone everywhere and I have to make this now. God, couldn't you have picked a better time? Maybe one of us in the first trimester, maybe two weeks at least after I delivered the baby, but why now? But, you know, we don't see any question from Mary. She faithfully does God's will. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And if you do the language there, she not only gave birth, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, Moms that have given birth, when you gave birth, did you have to then turn around and take care of the baby? Or did a nurse take care of the baby? And the nurse wrap up the baby. This shows that Mary was alone in the pregnancy and in the delivery. And Joseph's there helping and doing probably other things. But she's personally wrapping the baby, which would have been the job of her mom. Or of the midwife, of someone else. Someone else would have done this. But she's doing this on her own. And she's wrapping in swaddling clothes. Now, there's different discussions and debates on what the swaddling clothes were. Some people think it was strips of cloth and therefore being a foreshadow of Jesus' body being uh, wrapped tightly. And there was a foreshadow of that. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We do know that wrapping a baby tightly is a very, was a very common practice then and is now because it resembles the womb. It's just very comforting for the baby to have that done. And so... But there's also other ways of looking at it. Let me talk to you about this. Rabbi Jason Sabel, who is a Messianic Jew, he's a, a Jewish rabbi who does believe that Jesus is Messiah. He believes that the shepherds who saw the angels' chorus may have been Levitical shepherds who raised the sheep for sacrifice. In other words, they're in Bethlehem, which is a place of sacrifice, so it makes sense that the sheep nearby that town could have been the ones where, that where those sacrificial lambs were being raised. As such, they would have taken great care of the lambs, going so far as to, as to swaddle them. In other words, if a newborn lamb was born, and they're like, wow, this one's perfect, no blemish, no spots, this one is worthy of sacrifice, they would wrap it up in a certain way with a special type of blanket, if you will, that would signify this is one that will be a Passover lamb. And so I think that's probably more accurate of not only was it, it could have been pointed to Jesus' death, but more likely, I think it's pointing towards 
this specific being the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And so they would do this for those that had no blemish on them, and they had to be perfect in order to be sacrificed. So, and they laid them in a manger. And many times uh, we see this wooden thing that's kind of made uh, as a manger. And it could have been, sometimes they would put straw in those. But more likely, based on recent archaeology, especially around Bethlehem, they've found um, mangers of, of stone. And that would not only point to his death, but to his burial. That they, they was laid in, just like Jesus was laid in a, to- a tomb that was carved out. Here was a stone that was carved out for the feeding trough of animals. And so because there was no place for them in the inn, this word inn is kind of hard to understand in our culture. It means literally guest room, but it could have been in the plural, therefore guest rooms. That's why people say inn. But more than likely, more recent archaeology kind of backs up that everybody in Bethlehem had a guest room, just like a lot of you do, because in that culture, people traveled. There were no Motel 6s, which might have been a good thing, but there were no motels. You, go, you, you went and found your nearest relative, knocked on the door, and that's why they had a guest room. They, and so, but when they, Joseph got there hoping, you know, there was no cell phone. He didn't text his uncle, you know, Mephibosheth and say, hey, we're coming to town. Can we stay with you? You just show up and hope that there's room. I'm going to pick up my glasses before I step on them. So they knock on the door and say, man, Joseph, wow, it's been a long time. And oh, well, we were hoping we could stay in your guest room. Man, I've already got two families in there. But um, we've got the stable where the animals are and who knows, there could have been more families there. We don't know, but uh, that's where they ended up with the animals, not in the guest room. William Barclay said that there w- the fact that there was no room in the inn was symbolic of what was to happen to Jesus. This would be the rest of his life. Everywhere he'd go, many people didn't have room for him. In fact, there was a couple of times he was run out of town. Many times they wanted to stone him and kill him. So this would be symbolic of what was to happen to Jesus the rest of his life. The only place there was room for him was on a cross. They made sure there was room for him there between two soldiers. And this may sound cliche, but this is a question we need to ask ourselves all the time, not just at Christmas. Is there room in your life for Jesus? And again, it sounds cliche, but I, do you know how busy we think we are? Oh, man, I'm running late this morning. No time to read my Bible. Got to get to work. Oh, man, we got to hurry up and get home dinner. Now we got to hurry up and head out to practice. We got to do this. And we seem like we're just going and blowing, going and going and going. And we never take time to be still and know that he is God. Even 10 minutes. Certainly the God of the universe who laid down his life on the cross for us deserves at least that much. But we seem to, in America, have room for everything else. But we don't make enough time for Jesus. Uh, in the past, when I've done marital counseling, I, we went to um, what was called NANC at the time. Remember that, Bob? The, and it was, it's called ACBC. The, and the, the uh, Curtises are into that. They do biblical counseling. And the guy who was training us in biblical counseling, he would tell people, he would give them homework. He was a strong believer in giving people homework. I want you to read the Bible together every night this week. And next week, we're going to get together for marital counseling. You're going to tell me how you did. And then the first thing he would ask them in the counseling session was, did you do your homework? Well, no, it was a really busy week, blah, 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 blah. And he was ruthless. He would say, so um, I gave you the assignment on Tuesday. Tuesday night, did you watch television? 
uh, yeah, we did stream something then. Like, okay, so you had time on Tuesday. And see, that's where I would like quit, point made. He'd be, okay, let's go to Wednesday. Wednesday night, did you watch television? Uh, yeah, I think we did watch something. And again, this is where the compassion side, we would stop. He'd be like, no, no, Thursday night. And he's writing all this down. He said, okay, let's add this up here. You watched approximately 18 and a half hours of television, but you're telling me you had no time. He said, and like I said, this guy was tough, but some people need that. He's like, so you're telling me that I give you a homework assignment to read the Bible together for 15 minutes a night, and you didn't have time, but you had 18 and a half hours of television. You're wasting your time and mine by being here. You need to do your homework. You, this is about your marriage getting better. <laughs> it's interesting how we, we prioritize things, we make excuses, but really we almost say, like, how's life going? Well, I'm just really busy, as if it's a badge of honor, as if to be overcommitted is, is a good thing. But I think the American culture teaches us that, that, and really we need to call it what it is. It's sin. Constantly making our lives crammed to the, to the edges and where we have no time to breathe, we're not sleeping enough, we're not doing anything, and somehow we, yet, we find time to stream and to scroll, but we don't seem to have time for Jesus. And everybody said, oh me, <laughs> including Gary. Verse 8 says, and in the same region, there were shepherds. Shepherds, we think of in a noble way today. We think of, oh, wow, what a great job, cuddly little animals. But do you understand that shepherds in this day were... Uh, notorious for having a bad reputation. The shepherds were guys who had either done jail time or had a drinking problem or were outcasts of society for one reason or another. And this was like the only job you could get was watching sheep. In many ways, it was a boring job. In many ways, it was a stinky job, as you can imagine. And yet this is who God chooses to speak to at this time. Shepherds. They're out in the field. They're keeping, and notice they're out in the field. So um, some people have said, there's no way that Jesus was born in December. It would have been too cold. They would have been out in the field. Well, in Israel in December, it's not that bad. It's like South Texas. Not that I've been there, but that's just what I've heard. I'm not making a case that Jesus was born on December 25th, but the whole idea that it couldn't have ever happened then is also, I think, is refutable. But shepherds, why would God choose shepherds to have these angels make an announcement to. He could have made an announcement to the whole region, right? I mean, these angels are up in the sky. They could have made an announcement for everybody to see, for everybody to hear. But he chooses a handful of shepherds. We don't know how many. Well, I believe he chose them, number one, because they're humble. These are guys who know they're not worthy. These aren't the religious people. These aren't the Pharisees. The Pharisees think that you know, when Messiah comes, certainly he's going to come show himself to us. That's why they were so ticked off because, wait a minute, you're saying the Messiah came and he didn't show himself to, to the religious elite? How, why would God do that? Why would God show himself to women? Why would God show himself to shepherds, to children? Look at us. We're men of God. And God's like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to show myself to the humble. And that, that's where God always starts. This is a requirement to be saved. God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. The majority of people in this world who do not get saved, it's not because they haven't heard the gospel. It's not because they just don't understand the New Testament enough. It's not because they need more information. It's because they're proud. Look at me. I don't need God. I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not as bad as Hitler. 
nobody's as bad as Hitler, except for Stalin and Mussolini and, and a bunch of other communists. But it's crazy how we compare ourselves to the worst of the worst and then say, I'm okay. God wants people to be humble because when, in order to be saved, all you need is need. When you realize I'm helpless, I can't do this, I deserve punishment, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Does that sound familiar? Remember the two guys that go to the temple to worship? One's a Pharisee just talking about how great he is. I fast several times a week. I tithe of everything. Look at me. I give. I tithe. I fast. I do all this stuff. Aren't you impressed with me, God? And then the tax collector in the back says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it says, that man went home justified. Why did he go home justified and the other man not? Because he was humble. That's why God chose shepherds. He chose guys who knew that they were losers, knew that they were outcasts, knew that they weren't worthy of anything from God, and yet here God is visiting them. The second thing is it's just it fits the story. If they are Levitical shepherds taking care of the sacrificial lambs, they would be looking for a spotless lamb. And now here comes the, an announcer from the angel. Guess what? These lambs represent something bigger than sheep. They represent the Messiah, and guess what? You guys are the first to know about them. You guys are the ones we're going to make the announcement to. So they were looking for a lamb, and it fulfilled that prophecy. Number three, Jesus would be called the good shepherd, and he also be called the great shepherd. Now, in our Western vocabulary, we think of something's okay, it's good, it's great. That's not this, this scale we're talking about here. Good is reference to character and character quality of heart. Great is referring to magnitude, okay? Someone can be good, but not be great. And someone else can be great, like very big and powerful, but not be good. Jesus was both. He was the good shepherd. And of course, he said in that same context about being a shepherd, he said, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his friends. And when Jesus says that he was the good shepherd, Jews grew up memorizing, just like many of you, Psalm 23. Say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. They grew up knowing that. And they, it was the psalm of the good shepherd. And they'd all memorized that. And so Jesus stands up for them and says, guess what? I'm the good shepherd. All those times you've been praying Psalm 23, you were talking to me. Another reason that they hated him, Jesus made the seven I am statements. And one of them was, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So there's the reasons why. He chose the shepherd. But it's interesting to note that those who are called by God to care for his church are also called shepherds. In fact, in one context, it's, it's under shepherds. So Jesus is the great shepherd, and we're working for him as his under shepherds. So think about all that's happened here. God, in his sovereignty, has orchestrated, here's the decree of Caesar Augustus, and then the birth line or the lineage of two young people, Mary and Joseph, and he even orchestrated that the owner of the stable wouldn't have room. And he even prepared the hearts of the shepherds. Do you see God working out everything in history from the very big, the macro, to the very small, the micro? He, he's orchestrating every little detail for this moment in this time in history. Galatians 4.4 4 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, when everything was perfectly arranged, and everything was complete, that's when God sends forth his son. Think about that. Jesus was born at the perfect time. You say, really? Roman occupation? 
civil unrest, poverty and famine, all kinds of crazy things going on, and a teenage girl who would live under scorn, this is the perfect time? Let me tell you something. God works his best work in difficult times, in difficult circumstances. But think about this. For the gospel to spread as rapidly as it did, there were several things that had to take place. Number one, the world had to speak one language. That wasn't, you just go 150 years prior to this, that wasn't the case. But now everybody speaks Greek. Because of the Greek empire, everybody was educated. It's kind of like the way English is today. Almost every country you can travel to, they speak Swahili and English, Cantonese and English, German and English. And kids grow up in school learning English, except in America, we learn Spanish and forget it by ninth grade, okay? But we all know English, but the, English is the universal language of, of the economy, of our global economy. That's what Greek was then. But the Romans came in and overtook and surpassed the Greek empire, but here's what they did. They built roads everywhere so that travel was sped up dramatically. Things that would have taken years to, to arrive now took weeks because of the travel, the seafaring paths, as well as the roads. There are still roads that were built by the Roman Empire 2,100 years ago that are still just as smooth as could be if you travel over to uh, Europe, especially Southern Europe. And so the, 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 the ability for the gospel to spread rapidly through, because of the roadways and also because of the language and everything else. And also the Romans, they didn't care what religion you were. The Jews got to practice Judaism. Everybody got to practice their own religion. Like, we don't care what, just pay your taxes. And other empires like, no, you worship our way. But the Roman Empire was very eclectic. So think about all those things on the big level being in place for the gospel to spread so rapidly. But also think about all the little details they worked out for Joseph, for Mary, for the innkeeper, for the shepherds, everything. If God can orchestrate every little detail of history to fit his plan, can you trust him to control your life? That would be an emphatic yes. <laughs> so then why don't we? <laughs> why do we constantly wrestle control of our lives back away from the hands of God and say, but I can do this, God. I can do this. I know you'd rather me do this, but, but that way won't work, God. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it my way. And we sing along with Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way. Don't, don't ask me to sing, I won't. But that, that is like one of the most sinful songs in all of history. <laughs> I did it my way. Just shaking your fist in God's face saying, not your way, my way. And that is what all, and I mean, everybody say all, well, all of us struggle with. We don't, we look at other people and say, oh, she's so controlling or he's so manipulative. Yeah, maybe they're more than you are, but don't absolve yourself of the crime where we all are. We all wrestle with God daily. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross. How often? Daily, because we struggle with trusting God with the details of our life. But he's proven time and time and time again throughout history and even in your life that he can run things. He doesn't need our help. So let's move on to the shepherds and the angels. So an angel of the Lord, now it's interesting about that phrase here. When you see in the Old Testament, especially the angel of the Lord, who is that? Jesus. But here Jesus is not going to make his own announcement. This isn't the angel of the Lord. This is an angel of the Lord. And don't don't do, make the mistake of the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. He's not an archangel. Hebrews, the whole book is written to say Jesus created angels. He's better and bigger than the angels. Okay, But he made Old Testament appearances as a messenger. Christophany, whole other subject. 
Anyway, so here an angel of the Lord, we don't know who, but most likely Gabriel again. Gabriel's pretty busy in the Gospels. He appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What's interesting about this is the last time that the glory of the Lord appeared was almost 600 years prior to this, 593 B.C. And just like from Malachi to Matthew, there was 400 years of silence, there's also an absence of the glory of God for hundreds of years. And so Ezekiel is prophesying about when the glory of God would reappear, and sure enough, it reappears with the announcement of the Messiah. And as a typical human response when an angel appears, they were all filled with great what? Fear. Because these angels did not look like little babies with wings. They looked very fierce. They were warriors. They, they were looked like a military. So imagine almost like a glowing army in front of you. So they were very, they were very f- filled with fear. Now, this is just one angel and they're filled with great fear. That will be multiplied when the others appear. And the angel said to them, fear not. But that's what standard angel training is. You have to tell humans to fear not. For behold, I bring you good news. Good news. The word gospel literally means the good news. Now, there can't be good news unless there is what? Bad news. Okay? A doctor comes to you and says, hey, I've got bad news and good news. Bad news is you've got cancer. The good news is you're only stage two and it's very treatable, and we can knock this out with chemotherapy. The good news means so much more because of the bad news. If someone came to you and said, hey, I want you to take chemotherapy, you're like, why? I don't need chemotherapy. They have to give you the bad news first. And see, this is where, again, the disconnect with the gospel is people don't realize they're sick. People don't realize that they're dying of something called sin. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, no wonder you, you don't understand me. It's a sick you need a doctor, and evidently you're not sick. You're, you're perfect. So I'm going to go over here and talk to prostitutes. I'm going to spend my time with tax collectors and sinners and people with leprosy, because you guys don't need me after all. You guys, you guys are doing fine, or so they think. And so this good news is a good news of great joy, not just a little bit of joy, but great joy of incredible magnitude. Because again, if you realize how bad your situation is, you're way more excited. You have great, way more joy. Remember when the lady came to Jesus' feet and she broke the, 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 the container of, of ointment and she washed his feet and she was just crying and crying and crying. And Simon the Pharisee goes, some prophet he is. If he was a prophet, Certainly, you know, what kind of woman, what kind of filthy, nasty woman is washing his feet? He's thinking all this. Of course, then the Bible says, and Jesus, knowing his thoughts, says, Simon, I have something to tell you. If two guys owe somebody a, a money, and one of them owes them a ton of money, and one of them owes them just chump change, and he forgives them both, which one of these two guys do you think will love him more. He goes, well, I suppose, it's, like, it's interesting how he said that, I suppose the one who owed more, and he goes, right. He said, this is the reason why she's so excited that I'm here, and you're not. When I came in, you didn't even offer me water for my feet. You didn't offer me anything. And she, since the whole time I've been here, has not even ceased washing my feet with her tears. Why is she experiencing great joy at my presence, and you're not? 
because she realizes what a sinner she is. And you, in your smugness, your pride, and your arrogance, you think you're better than her. You're not. She's just humble enough to receive it. You see, the reason we're not more excited about how great of joy we should be experiencing our salvation is because we've forgotten where we came from. And there are a lot of times when people get saved and then they fade away, it's because it makes you wonder if they really got saved. Did they even realize how great a sinner they were or was it just the religious motions they were going through? He says, for unto you, here's the announcement the angel's giving, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson puts it this way. God didn't send an economist because man's biggest problem wasn't money. God didn't send an entertainer because man's biggest problem wasn't boredom. And God didn't send a politician because our biggest problems in the world aren't political. God didn't send a doctor because sickness wasn't our worst issue. God didn't send an educator. We were not dying for lack of information or knowledge. God didn't even send a civil rights leader because racism, contrary to what our culture is telling us, is not the worst problem we have. It is a problem, but it's not the worst problem we have. God didn't send a general because war, as bad as it is, isn't the worst problem that man has. God didn't send any of these. He sent a savior because man's biggest problem, the world's biggest problem is sin. Did you know that the Webster's Collegiate Dictionary last year took the word sin out? That's how bad our culture is, that we don't even want to talk about the subject. People are offended if you use the word sin. But yet the Bible uses it often, and this is, it goes back to man's pro- problem. Not only is the world's biggest problem sin, your biggest problem is sin. Gary's biggest problem is sin. Even if I'm saved, I still struggle with it, right? And so it's our biggest problem. We could blame everything else. 30 years ago, if someone was struggling with depression and they went to a therapist and they started talking about, the therapist would tell them to look inside and see what the problem was. Today, if you go to a therapist, they're going to tell you to look outside and see who your problem is. They will do that. Oh, your problem is your mother. Your your mother is too manipulative. The problem is your dad. He didn't give you enough hugs and kisses. The problem is your boss. You need to quit and get another job. And we are all trained to blame everybody and not see where the problem really is. It's our sinful heart. It's it. The problem lies within us. That is why God sent a savior, not a therapist, not anything else. And this savior who is present tense, Christ the Lord, the new age movement teaches us and and Buddhists teach, and all the, all the Hindu religions teach that Christ, because he became self-actualized, he became the Christ later in life, more, most people say, at his baptism. <laughs> That's not what the angel said. The angel said, today, he is Christ. This little baby right here is Christ the Lord. Notice the three titles there. Savior, because he will come and save you from your biggest problem, sin. Christ, he's the Messiah. He's the one qualified to do that to be the sacrificial sacrificial lamb. But the third one is very important, equally important, but often neglected. He's the Lord. You see, in our culture, we still struggle with what's called easy believism. Hey, who wants to go to hell? Of course, nobody wants to go to hell. How many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Okay, great. Pray this prayer and say, thank you, God, you know, and 
and forgive me of my sins. Amen. No mention of the lordship of Christ at all. You know, you get to be the giver, or the getter, but you give nothing. And again, you have nothing really to give, but to give up control of your life. Just say, here's my life. Be the Lord of my life. Not asking you to do anything. You, it's, it's about giving up and realizing your need. But a lot of people, just, they want the life insurance policy, or should I say fire insurance policy, but they don't want to give up any rights or relinquish any sovereignty over their life. And it says, and this shall be a sign for you. In other words, some, when something's a sign, it's something that's out of the ordinary. It's not ordinary. And so look for something unordinary. You're going to see this baby wrapped in an unusual way, and you're going to see it lying in a crib. No. A, a, a bed. No. A manger of all places where animals feed. This is where this will be the sign that you'll know that this baby, this baby, this is the one. This will be the sign. And then suddenly, when he makes that announcement, there was with, an angel, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Now, host means like troop or a battalion. And so this was approximately 5,000, if you put it in Roman terms. So you go from one angel that's scaring you to death, who's saying, don't be afraid, to thousands of angels. And now you're like really scared. <laughs> you're really scared. And th- what are these angels doing, though? They're not attacking. Here's an army but they're evidently the Marine choir and they're singing, okay? Which was probably a great relief to the shepherds to not be killed. And here's the, like the best artist rendering I can give you of what an angel army would look like. Again, no diapers involved. Uh, and there's, what are they singing? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Now, what's interesting about this is what kind of peace would Jesus bring? Uh, would it be peace between people? Did Jesus' birth solve all family problems, all interrelational problems at work? No, none of that happened because he wasn't coming to give that kind of peace. Would he bring peace between the nations? Um, no, we still have wars. In fact, atheists all over the internet will say, well, if Jesus is a Messiah and he's supposed to be the Prince of Peace, then where's the world peace? This is proof that Jesus is not who he said he was. He said he's the Prince of Peace. He came and, you know, and the angels even announced peace on earth. And there's no peace on earth. See, Jesus is wrong. And so they'll say, but that's not the kind of peace that Jesus was, was bringing. And this isn't just Gary's interpretation. Listen to the very words of Jesus himself. He said, don't think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he goes on to say that, you know, I'm going to divide a father and a son a mother and a daughter, and a father and a son-in-law. In other words, you have to choose. Are you going to serve Christ or are you going to serve yourself? And families would be split open because of that. That was true of my own family. I, I was the youngest of six kids. My mom was devout Catholic. My dad was agnostic. I got saved when I was nine. I became a Jesus freak shortly after that. And I was telling my whole family, I want them to go to heaven and not go to hell. I want them to be saved. And they were like, Gary, slow down. You know, you're freaking us out, you know? And my dad became very upset with me. And when I, 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 you may have heard the story before, but when I told my dad that I wanted to be a pastor when I grow up, he said, Gary, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. There was a sword in the Milborn family. And what's funny is then a couple of years later, my sister Gwen got saved. So now it's two over here and six over here. 
And then a couple years later, my brother Jerry got saved. So now it's three over here and five over here. Then a few years later, my sister Nancy got saved. Now the family's really divided. Some really awkward Christmases, okay? Some really weird Thanksgiving, some, some heated exchanges sometimes, because sometimes as Christians in our enthusiasm, we don't really use discretion. But sometimes people are going to be offended no matter what you do. But there was a sword. There was no peace in the Millborn family because Christ had come. So what kind of peace is Jesus talking about? It's not talk, he's talking about the peace between man and God. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced, Jesus was pierced, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. Peace between us and God because of our sin. And with his wounds, we are healed. The relationship between God and man was torn, and the blood of Christ heals it. That's the kind of peace he's talking about. Romans backs this up when Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. Not peace with fellow mankind. Not peace nation to nation, but peace with God. Individually, we individually, when we put our faith in Christ, have peace with God, and that is done through Christ and specifically his sacrifice on the cross. So there will not be world peace until Christ, the Prince of Peace, returns and sets up his physical kingdom here on earth. That's when that part will be actualized. But in the meantime, the peace the angel was talking about was peace on earth where men can be reconciled to God. Isn't that what the Christmas hymn says? So Isaiah 55, when it's prophesying about the millennium, when Christ returns, it says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing. This is what the Garden of Eden restored worldwide will look like. There will be peace on earth then, not in the meantime. In the meantime, it's, it's in our hearts. So we look forward to that kingdom when Christ will return. And we always say the lion lays down with the lamb. It's actually the wolf. Okay, And the lamb lays down with the goat and all that. And here's the verse right here. If I quote it right, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, sorry, leopard, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead all these wild animals. This is what the kingdom will look like. I am looking forward to riding an elephant. Anybody else with me on that? I'm looking forward to petting a tiger under the chin. Good kitty, kitty, kitty. You know, And I don't even like cats, but in the, in the kingdom, I will. Okay, I'll, all that will be, cats will be redeemed and all that stuff. Dogs will still be the best, but to interact with wild animals will be a crazy thing in heaven. And that's just the beginning of what a beautiful place it would be. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying for that physical kingdom. In the meantime, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your hearts, but it'll be physical reality in the future. So when the angels went away from them, the shepherds said to one another, which is a good thing to do. They, they had small group right here. They had life group. And they said, hey, let's talk about what we just learned. And so here's what they decide. Let us go. In some translations, the language implies, let us go now over to Bethlehem. They didn't want to hesitate. They wanted to do that. Bethlehem means house of bread, which reminds us of another great I am statement of Jesus. What did Jesus say about bread? I am the bread of life. So how fitting is it that God orchestrated history that he would be born in the house of bread? And he says, and see the thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. There was no disconnect between, do you think the angels are right? This was like, it's a done deal. This thing has happened. We haven't even seen it yet. But we know that's happened. They trusted God's word and his announcement. 
So they went with haste. They hurried. By the way, a great film uh, by Dallas Jenkins before he made The Chosen uh, is the one about the shepherd. You, ought, you need to watch that. It's only like 28 minutes long. It's super good. Watch that between now and Christmas. All right. So they went with haste. They hurried up. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Just like the angel said, the sign was fulfilled that, that the baby would be in this unusual spot. And that's how you know this baby is the one. They didn't say, you'll know he's the one because his head will glow. There'll be some golden ring around his head like you see in all the Catholic pictures. He wasn't glowing. He was probably still a little bit dirty. He was probably even crying. But he was the one because of where the angel said he would be found. So we've seen the sovereignty of God, how all this was orchestrated. We see the shepherds receiving the announcement from the angels and they glorify God. And now they're going to take this saying and see how different people respond to it. So let's talk about the saying and the different responses to it. And when they saw it, they made known the saying. What saying? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That is the saying. That's the prophecy. And so they went around telling all the people around Bethlehem, okay, hey, guess what? We saw an angel. In fact, we saw thousands of angels. And they told us, on today, the Messiah has been born here in Bethlehem. Can you believe it? So they went around telling you. You can imagine all the different reactions of people. Some believed, some didn't, but they, they went around telling people. Matthew chapter 10 says, and as you go, this is talking to us and to the disciples, we should be saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. You have received freely. What should be your response? Freely give. How many of you have received the gospel freely? What should be our response? We should be freely passing that on to others. This is reminiscent of one of my favorite stories in 2 Samuel. There was four leopards who were in a, not only they were, were struck with leprosy, which is a great problem, but they're in a war situation. The city that they were a part of that they weren't allowed to go into was being besieged, which means that they had to lock all the gates and they're surrounded by an army all the way around. And the river that flows through that city, they've dammed it off. So now they have no water, they have no food, and the army on the outside is like, we're just going to wait. We're going to wait till you all are starving to death or you come out and surrender, you know, because of dehydration and starvation, whatever. So we're just going to wait. So the lepers are like, we can't go in the city. <laughs> it's locked and we're lepers. We're not allowed anyway. If we sit here, we're going to starve to death. Let's go over the hill to, the, to the, where the enemy is camped and let's just throw ourselves at our mercy. If they run us through with a sword, great, we're going to die anyway. But if they have mercy on us and they feed us and throw us a few crumbs, then great, we're better off. So they walked over and God made the footsteps sound like an army marching. And all these guys got, ran from their tents. They had food cooking. They had everything else set on their tables and they just ran. And the lepers walk in, they're like, it's a ghost town. Like, where is everybody? They open, it, they open the tents, they're like, look at this, there's a feast already made. And just like right at dinner time, when they were thanking their gods for the food, they all just ran away. And so they sit down, they're eating, they're eating turkey legs, and they're stuffing their face with pumpkin pie, I'm sure, because it's not just kidding. And all these things, and there's gold, and there's jewels, and they're like, wow, this is great. And then one of them, after they're like getting full, they're like, you know what, this isn't right. I'm like, what do you mean this isn't right? Well, we're not doing the right thing here. Why? Here we are feasting on our brothers or sisters are locked in the city thinking they're going to die any minute now. We need to go tell them. 
freely they had received, freely they went and told. And sure enough, they did, and, and people got fed, and the war was over. That's the way we are with the gospel. You cannot hold this greatest news of your wonderful relationship with the love of Christ to yourself and not tell somebody. But why don't we? It goes back to that sin of pride. What if they're offended? They don't like me. What if I hurt their feelings? What if, what if, what if? You know what? Someone didn't hold back when they told you. So we need to be open and freely give. Our purpose in life is the same as these lowly shepherds to tell that a Savior has come. The shepherds say, well, I'm not qualified. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a shepherd. They wouldn't even hire me in any other job but this job. Why would they listen to me? And all those same excuses we can make as well. But our job is to tell them the Savior has come to the world, Christ Jesus the Lord. And then all who heard it wondered, really, what? Like, wonder, is this true? Is it not? There's some amazement involved. But they just wondered. And it's interesting that was their response. They didn't say they believe, all who heard it believed or all who heard it went to go see. They're just like, what? Really? Huh? And they just were speculative as what the, the shepherds meant. But Mary, she treasured up all these things because the shepherds told her what they heard from the angel. She treasures up all these sayings about it. And she's just like, wow, can you believe it? I still can't get over that God chose me. I mean, nine months ago, the angel told me, and I'm like, what? How could this happen? And here we are, and here's the Messiah, and now it's being confirmed by angels. Wow. And, and it's good to take the blessings of God and just stop and ponder, stop and think. Have you done that recently? Don't wait till Thanksgiving, which is this month, to just stop and think, you know how lucky I am? And you know how I use the word luck, right? Do you realize how gracious God has been to me? that I, I am free, that I know him as my savior, that I have a Bible, that I'm not being persecuted. I mean, the list of blessings goes on and on and on. And just to treasure up those things, especially not just blessings, but the working of God in her life, she counted those as treasures. And look what God has done. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and had told them. So, the people just stop and wonder. Mary stops and treasures. The shepherds, they, they go and tell. And there's a big difference between wondering and treasuring. Wondering and treasuring. I see this happen all the time. Two people can come to church, sit in the same service, and one walks out and like, eh, that was good. Let's go have lunch. And the other person's like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what I needed to hear. There was about a month ago that a young man visited our church. And as, as soon as, I think I asked Eugene to pray and I walked off this way. He didn't even wait till Eugene was done. He went from where Manuel was sitting and he followed me right out there. met me in the lobby and he goes like, did you just like think of all that just now? I'm like, no. I mean, I, I study and prepare. You can see my slideshow. So he's like, you just like answered like every question I was asking my wife last night. He said, we just had a newborn baby. And I'm thinking, Someone told me in heaven, we don't know each other. And I want to know this child when I get to heaven. You just told us in the service. Of course, we'll know each other in heaven. He said, and I have this question and this question, this question. And you just hit like every single one in your sermon. And he was paying careful attention. You know, he was treasuring all this. Other people are like, yeah, I wonder what that means. And they just move on. 
And it's interesting, it's really how we receive the Word of God. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He's writing this letter to a very confused church because they think the rapture's already happened. And he's like, no, 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 just settle down. He says, and he says, I thank God constantly for this, that when you received, everybody say received, when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. But watch this, here's the key. Not as the words of men, oh, nice, Paul, nice sermon, Paul, but as it really was, the Word of God. And because that's the way to receive it, it's at work in you as believers. So each of us, when we receive the Word of God, we got a responsibility. Is Gary just up there talking? Now, don't, don't think, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about when I talk about my opinions, that's the Word of God, okay? I'm talking about when I'm teaching the Word of God and we're reading the Word of God, that's why we say, thanks be to God. And we, you know, That's the perfect part of the sermon was Michaela read that, okay? But when we're learning the Word of God, I'm like, oh, and the Holy Spirit's illuminating our hearts, like, oh, that's what that means. You just, do we walk away and say, okay, that was nice, Gary. Or like, wow, thank you, Lord, for speaking to your church this morning. You see, how you receive it makes all the difference. That's why some people are just like, oh, I wonder what that means. And Mary treasures, and the shepherds tell. How do you personally receive the Word of God? That's why it's so helpful on Monday morning when you open your Bible to say, Lord, open my eyes and I behold wondrous things out of your Word. That's what David taught us to pray. When we come into church, Lord, prepare my heart for worship. Let me to hear what you, want, what you want me to hear for me personally. So then at the end of eight days, and we learned with John the Baptist, eight days is when your body develops vitamin K, so blood clotting can start happening, so the child wouldn't bleed to death. We knew all that. The Bible knew all that thousands of years before scientists learned that just in the last century. And being circumcised, this is just something I learned this week. By being circumcised, Jesus had shed blood had bloodshed as a sign of God's old covenant. See, the old covenant required circumcision as God's covenant with his chosen people. You knew that you were a chosen person of God because of circumcision that the Jews had. But watch this. But by being crucified, Jesus shed his blood to fulfill God's new covenant. So a few drops of blood were shed at his birth for the old covenant. All of his blood was shed to fulfill the new covenant. What a beautiful picture of the circumcision of Christ. So, he was called Jesus. That's what the angel told him to name him. In interesting thing is, when you name something, especially in the Bible, it means you have authority over it. That's why in the past, slave owners would rename their slaves to show they had authority over them. So, here Joseph doesn't name the baby Joseph Jr. He was already told what to name him because this child will have authority over you. You won't have authority over this child. This child will have authority over you. That doesn't absolve Joseph of his responsibilities to raise him. We know that, and he did a good job. But what a beautiful thing this is here has happened. This was born in the city of David, a child. And this is, this is the event that changed the world. We call it 2023, Anno Domine, A.D. I heard someone recently say after death. No, it's not after death. Anno Domine means the Latin for year of our Lord, the year that Jesus was born. All of history revolves around the birth of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, talking about this event, says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I could preach for hours and hours trying to talk about what a wonderful gift the incarnation is, and I could not exhaust the details. I would just be getting started. And really, this child was born not just to live a perfect life, but to die the perfect death. 
You know, sometimes gifts offend. <laughs> you ever had a gift that you open and you're kind of offended by it? What if this Christmas someone gives you a book and it's like the idiot's guide to losing weight? Okay, um, thank you. And then the next person you open up a gift from another person and it's how you could be a better friend. Okay, my self-esteem is tanking right now. And then the third gift you open up is a big old bottle of Listerine. Wow, are you offended yet? You might be like, okay, is this a gag? No, not, seriously, I, I just thought you needed this, you know. You know, there are some gifts that offend, that in order to receive them, you have to acknowledge that, that that's a problem. And the problem is you are far more sinful than you realize. That offends a lot of people. The gospel is a gift that offends. Christ himself, the Bible calls it as a rock of offense. You are far more sinful than you realize, but the good news is you are more loved than you could ever imagine. And the reason people don't get saved is because they're offended by the gospel. You've just told them, you're a dirty, dirty rotten sinner, you're going to hell. You're like, what? I'm not a bad person. Of course, we don't want to say it like that. <laughs> okay? We don't want to be offensive in the way we say it, but let me tell you, you cannot change this. The gospel will offend, and it has to offend. A person with these problems is not going to get any better until they admit that these things are true and that they actually need this gift. So don't be bothered when people are offended by you sharing the gospel. Don't be bothered when it hurts their feelings. In fact, we live in a culture today where most churches are making the gospel so mushy and so sweet and, and so gentle that it's just like, oh, just raise your hand, fill out a card, great, you're good. And no offense is taking place whatsoever. It's just like, well, I just want to be positive. We, the gospel has to have a negative before it can reveal the ultimate positive. Isaiah 53 again says he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. That makes us transgressors. He was crushed for our iniquities. That makes you a filthy person. That's what iniquity is. It's the, it's the filth that comes with sin. And upon the chastisement, upon him was the chastisement. We deserve that punishment. That's what brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved from that sin. Have you surrendered to Christ? Have you given your life to him because he gave his life for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Even if it's not Christmas time, we, we can learn from it. We need to learn from it. Father, help us to understand that Christ was born the Savior that we needed. We could point to so many things that are not, that really aren't our problem, but we can blame it on that. But Lord, help us to look deep inside our heart and realize sin is our biggest problem. Our pride, our rebellion against a holy God. But Father, you sent your son anyway. And while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so Father, if there's one here today watching online or here in God's house that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would do so today. That they would step over that line of faith and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and all who were obedient. May we be in their footsteps following you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you want to know more information about how to trust Christ, you can text me. If you made that decision, I'd love to hear from you. Um, Ms. Chenda, would you like to help me with Q&A, please? All right. If you have a question, you can raise your hand or you can text it in. We've got one so far. but you. Um, 
Sometimes the reception in this building is not great, so if it doesn't come through, just raise your hand. So here we go. How about this one, Matt? There we go. Matt's already got it turned on. He's on the job. How you doing today, Chenda? Good. Someone asked me recently, is Chenda the proper pronunciation or is it Chinda? It's Chenda. It is Chenda. Okay, I told them right then. I want to make sure we're pronouncing your name right. Chenda. Okay, the Cambodian way, right? Good. Peace and love. There we go. Very fitting. All right. Like Chenda. almost like a J sound. Almost. Almost. All right. Cool. It's been Americanized. <laughs> so is that the first question? It is. I yeah. So why was David the benchmark for the town to which they had to go? So everybody had to trace their ancestry, but I guess what you're saying is how far back did they have to go? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know, because they didn't do it by tribes, and because David wasn't one of the 12 sons. So why have the house and lineage of David? I don't know. That's a good question. Because, I mean, did they? that would obviously be like six generations or so. So they could have went back to Obed. They could have went back to Boaz. But they could have went back to the tribe, the tribe of Judah. Yeah. Whatever you say. <laughs> um, say the name again. Oh, Laban. Okay, no wonder you're throwing me off. I'm like, you knew something in the Bible I didn't catch there. Um, wow, that, that's a great question. We have to, I'm going to have to study up on that. Good job. Good, good question, Patrick. I, the only thing I can think of, and I'm going to have to confirm this, is there's no city of Judah. There's no city of Laban, but there is a city of David. And so if you have to go back to a location, then you'd have to go to cities that are t attached to the lineage. But that, I'm going to have to research that. That's a great question. Anybody else have one I can't answer for you? Is there any others that came in? All right. Anybody raise your hand? All right, going once. All right, let's stand. And we're going to read the blessing from Numbers chapter 6. And may this guide you through your week. Read out loud with me on verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.